0: This week on PA Books, Judith Ridner, author of *The Scots-Irish of Early Pennsylvania*.
1: Judith Ridner, author of *The Scots-Irish of Early Pennsylvania*, a varied people. Why are they a varied people?
0: Oh, that's the big question that I'm trying to answer. Uh, so first, let me uh, thank you very much for having me here to talk with you. Um, so the Scots-Irish are typically seen as a people who are um, who are sort of one-dimensional. They're either these kind of uh, rough-and-ready sort of leaders like Andrew Jackson, or they are these hillbillies. And so they get kind of uh, compartmentalized into these into these kind of stereotype categories. And instead, uh, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that they're really these very varied people. They come from a variety of class backgrounds. They come from a variety of economic backgrounds. Uh, they come from different educational backgrounds. And then once they get here to Pennsylvania, they also continue to live very varied lives. They're not just out on the frontier. They're also in the cities. They're in small towns. They're kind of all over the state. They are not just an exclusively rural people. They are also an urban people. Uh, They pursue a variety of economic pursuits. So that They're no one group. They are a group that is uh, highly diverse, um, both geographically and economically.
1: Well, uh, just the name Scots-Irish has Scotland and Ireland in it. Are they Scottish or Irish?
0: Ah, yeah, another good question. Uh, They're a little bit of both is what most people would say about them. Uh, They are, uh, their origins are in Scotland. Uh, They were originally, their ancestry is in Scotland. They were originally from Scotland, but they are migratory people who go from Scotland over to Ireland, uh, mostly in the 17th century, uh, especially in the late 17th century. Uh, and then in the 18th century, they come over in large numbers to uh, the American colonies, particularly to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is really the place that absorbs the greatest number of these people. So they have these ancestries that start in Scotland, many of them live for multiple generations in Ireland and then they come to America. So they really are a kind of hybrid people that represents a a kind of uh, a hybrid ethnic identity that is Scottish and Irish and then American.
1: Why would they have left Scotland to go to Ireland in the first place?
0: A combination of factors, uh, mostly economic factors in Scotland. Uh, Scotland is its economy is stagnating in the 17th century, uh, so a lot of people in the Scottish lowlands, which is where most of these people are from, are not doing so well economically. And at the same time, in the northern reaches of, of Ireland, in Ulster province, Ireland, um Things are changing in ways due to the English conquest of Ireland that is offering uh, Scottish peoples new opportunities for resettlement in the northern sections of Ireland. Uh, Essentially the English are using them as a sort of colonizing force because the Scots are Protestants, they're mostly Presbyterians, uh, they share that Protestant identity with the English. And the English are encouraging them to come over to Ireland because they want them to be sort of uh, cultural but also economic role models uh, that will sort of civilize uh, the native Catholic Irish.
1: Did the English who had been Anglican see the Scots who were Presbyterian as being kind of like us or were they just throwing them in there to, to water down the Catholic population in Ireland?
0: Um, a little bit of both. Uh, So there's certainly, the English certainly see the Scots Presbyterians as having this common Protestant identity, of sharing that Protestant identity, which they see as being very important and as as a kind of bolster to Catholicism. But at the same time, there are some tensions that cut through that shared Protestantism because uh, in Scotland, the Presbyterians are essentially part of the Church of Scotland, which is Presbyterian. So once they then move over to Northern Ireland, they are then dissenter Protestants because the Church of Ireland which is Anglican is the state sponsored church. So that means that there's a little bit of tension there in that relationship. By the same token, however, um the English are very interested in having those Scots Protestants come over, despite whatever differences they have with them on the fine details of these different religions, uh, because they still see them as a real bolster against Irish Catholics and a way to sort of, um, a kind of quick and dirty way to get a Protestant foothold firmly established in Ireland one that they presume will then uh, help to make the Irish into perhaps good Protestants eventually.
1: And that's why Northern Ireland is Protestant today?
0: Yes, it is, yeah. It really happens, it starts, the so-called plantations, Ulster plantations, start under Queen Elizabeth I in the very end of the 1500s, so the late 16th century, and then they really get going under uh, James I, of England, who was a Stuart, he was a Scot, and so there's no coincidence then that he uses some of his fellow—he encourages, I should say, his fellow Scots to come over to Northern Ireland as a kind of colonizing force, and then from there it just that uh, that initial Protestant plantation continues to grow during the 17th century.
1: So when the Scots landed in Northern Ireland, how did they get along with the local? The local population was predominantly Catholic? Irish
0: and mostly Catholic. uh, Irish and I should say predominantly Catholic. Um, There are, I I would say, it's a mixed relationship because the native Irish Catholics certainly resent the imposition of these Protestants on them. Uh, and there's a whole series of wars that happened during the 17th century as the native Irish rise up on multiple occasions to try to fight off these Protestant colonizers, which uh, mostly include and target the English, but which also include the these, these Scots settlers that the English have been encouraging to migrate over to Northern Ireland. So in the 17th century, there's tremendous tension uh, and a lot of sectarian strife. And much of that is really the kind of forerunner for the sectarian strife that we've seen like in the 20th century in Northern Ireland.
1: So when the Scots were in, arrived in Northern Ireland, did they see themselves and English as allies and pushing the Catholics out? Is that the way it worked?
0: Um, yes and no. I mean, technically, yes, they do. They are supposed to be allied together, working together, on this kind of colonizing project. Um, Through time, though, those alliances, the tensions that are in those alliances start to manifest themselves uh, and and grow as kind of fissures through time. So the tension over religion, for instance, the fact that the Scots are uh, Presbyterian and the English are Anglicans becomes a point of difference. And then, particularly as we start to get into the early 18th century, as the English start to regulate non-Anglican uh, peoples in Ireland, including these Scots Presbyterians, these Scots Presbyterians, uh, Scots Presbyterians excuse me, uh, that tension really starts to grow and um, develops into some real antagonism between these Scots Protestant settlers and the English.
1: So you said they originally left Scotland to go to Ireland for economic opportunity. Did they find it?
0: Uh, yes, they did. In many respects they did. Uh, they get uh, many people coming in from Scotland into Ireland are very interested in holding land. A fair number of them find opportunities for land ownership, which is great. Uh, a fair number of other people who don't, do not necessarily have the economic means to own land, to purchase land, become renters with very favorable lease terms. So there are opportunities for land holding. There are also opportunities for various other economic uh, forms of activity uh, in the towns that the English are establishing in Northern Ireland, Uh, also within the growing linen industry within Northern Ireland. So they, for the most part, they do find economic opportunity. Everything is not perfect, but they do generally find opportunity in the late 17th and early 18th centuries.
1: Did they mix with the local Catholic population? Was there any inter- intermarriage or did they just live separate lives?
0: Mostly they live separately. Mostly they live separately. Uh, and um, the English are working very hard to keep the population separate because in earlier centuries, The first English colonization attempts in Ireland happened in the late medieval period primarily, when they send over some English settlers into Ireland. And those English settlers do intermarry with the native Irish Catholics and very much come to kind of blend in and very much become Irish. So in the 17th century, the English are working very hard to try to keep people apart. So intermarriage is discouraged. And I would add, too, that the effects of the Protestant Reformation and then the English Reformation mean that religion is really um, uh, a divisive force in the 17th and 18th century in ways that it wasn't back in the late medieval period when, whether you were English or Irish or Scottish, you were Catholic. And so, essentially, the dynamic changes then by the 17th century, and religion starts to take on such importance that it really works to keep those native Irish Catholics and the Scots Protestant settlers apart.
1: When the Scots went to Ireland, did they come in one big wave and then stop, or was there kind of an ongoing flow?
0: No, it's an ongoing flow. And, um, until recently, a lot of that flow was narrated as sort of um, one big kind of burst of migration that happens in the very uh, during the Elizabethan and then uh, early 17th century under James. That it's kind of a, a late 16th, early 17th century migration, and one of the things that a lot of Irish historians have really talked about in recent years about is about how that's not really so that really this migration goes on in fits and starts throughout the 17th century, and in fact, there's a big migration in the 1690s um, as peace sort of returns to Northern Ireland after, uh, or during, I should say, the reigns of William and Mary and after the Battle of the Boyne, when a lot of Protestants from Scotland perceive Ireland to be kind of turning to more Uh, peaceful conditions, and some of the war and religious turbulence that marked the 17th century is on the wane. So there's actually a big migration in the 1690s, which has a lot of implications for understanding the Scots-Irish because it means that many of the families who come over here to Pennsylvania in the 18th century were relatively recent migrants to, to Ireland. And so that meant that they really did have um, a sense of their Scottish Scottish heritage as well as their Irish heritage.
1: Now, when I was in elementary school many years Mm ago, we were told the term Scotch-Irish.
0: Uh-huh, right.
1: Is Scotch now a pejorative?
0: It is. I speak as a scholar, and certainly in the scholarly community, we have pretty much uniformly turned away from the term Scotch seeing it as, I say in the book, as a a kind of whiskey rather than the name for a people. Um, And in many respects, too, I've seen in some of my other work that Scotch was a term that English often used to refer to the Scots. So it does have some pejorative qualities, even though it remains tremendously popular here in the U.S., Uh, where many people talk about their Scotch-Irish ancestors. But many scholars, me included, have very much turned away from it and sort of say, you know, these are Scottish people from Scotland, so they need to be Scots-Irish.
1: Do you have any Scots-Irish in your family?
0: I don't, but I have a lot of Irish heritage. Um, And some of my family is actually from County Leitrim, which is a border county with Northern Ireland. But my own um, ancestors are Catholic and not Protestant and um, Irish, but just outside of Ulster.
1: So, is it accurate to say that the Scots Irish are really Scots who just lived in Ireland for a while?
0: Um, Well, that's a tough question. Yes and no is what I would say. And I don't mean to hedge too much there, but um, they do become. What's interesting is I I don't want to overstate their Scottish qualities, because when they get over to America, they identify, and others identify them as Irish. So there is clearly a transformation that goes on while they live in Ulster and um and and it has to do with many things i think in some cases if they have families that date back to the early 17th century their accents have changed it's gone they've gone from having a scottish to an irish accent um some of their cultural customs may have changed and become more irish Uh, Many of them also have never, some of the people who come over with long-term roots in Ireland have no sense of Scotland. The place that they've known has been Ireland, and Ireland is different than Scotland. So for some people, there really is a kind of multi-generational process of change that they've experienced, and by the time they come over to here, to Pennsylvania, they really have a sense of being Irish. Other Other families who migrate over may be quite recent migrants to Ireland, and so they may sound and act quite Scottish still. So uh, to go back to your original question about how there are varied people, this is also one of those ways that they are varied. They have slightly, even though the pattern, the trajectory of migration is one that they all share, the pace of their migrations have been different, and thus um, the the degree to which they tilt to being Irish or Scottish also varies.
1: So what was the thing they had in common that, that made them a people?
0: Um, I think a couple of things. Probably the easiest thing to point to is that the vast majority of them were Presbyterian. and there is and that Presbyterian heritage is something that really cares, carries through. It is a continuity that links their experience in Scotland in Ireland, and then here in Pennsylvania and America more generally. I think that's very important. Then there are some of these cultural traits that it's kind of hard to, that in part are used sometimes to stereotype them, but seem to be things that do get at their essence as a people. And certainly one of the things that I would point to uh, is their kind of entrepreneurial quality. They were people, and kind of related to that, their, their adaptability as a people. They are people who showed a remarkable ability to sort of change and be flexible depending on the different contexts and places that they were in. Um, and then the entrepreneurial side, I think, is very closely related to that they were people who were very adept at sort of responding to their circumstances and finding ways to make a living within those circumstances and some of that plays into stereotypes of them as these sort of rough and ready sort of hardy people who go to the frontier and make their way and there is therefore some truth in that stereotype But by the same token, it also speaks to those of them who come into the cities and those of them, for instance, in Northern Ireland that start to uh, work in the linen industry, in the linen trades. And again, it shows a kind of um, adaptability and entrepreneurial quality that I think defines kind of who they are and what they're about.
1: How big a part was their religion in their lives?
0: Um, I would say very, very substantial. Um, and mainly because it is really... Well, when you think about religion in general in the 18th century or now, uh, it is the kind of belief system that shapes your worldview and the way you approach the world. It regulates your moral values. And in the case of the Scots-Irish and the nature of Presbyterianism, because Presbyterianism is so uh, based in congregations it also was a really dominant force in regulating their communities and sort of setting the bounds of their communities and linking individuals and families together as communities. So it has certainly um, a a sort of higher uh, function in terms of providing it is the source of their faith or at least it structures their faith which is not something that's easy to measure. But then it's also super important in terms of how it um, regulates and structures their communities. Because certainly as they come over here to Pennsylvania, it's very frequent that they come to a place where other members of their congregation in Ireland may have migrated to. And they have formed a congregation here in Pennsylvania. And so that church then, the meeting house, literally the physical structure of the meeting house, is one of the draws that brings them to particular places in Pennsylvania. What did they call themselves? What did they call themselves? Frequently they call themselves Irish in the 18th century. Sometimes they talk about themselves as Irish Protestants. I have seen two... Uh, some references to them calling themselves Scotch-Irish, one or two references in some documents that I've seen. Um, Mostly they talk about themselves as Irish, and mostly other observers in Pennsylvania talk about them as the Irish. Um, But they do frequently call themselves Irish Protestants.
1: Well, we're well into this interview, and we really haven't talked about their their coming to America. Mm -hmm. So when did they start uh, hearing about pennsylvania and why did they come here
0: so they start as um as you may know from talking to many other authors on pennsylvania history uh william penn who's the founder of the colony is very effective at promoting his colony as a place that people on the move want to be in the late 17th and early 18th century um he publishes a whole series of promotional tracks uh promoting the colony uh, he very much publicizes the fact that the colony uh, adheres to notions of religious toleration so that people from a variety of religious backgrounds can come here and find their way and find that they can participate in the political process no matter what their religion. So that's very important in drawing them here. Um, and they come, and, and so for these um, Protestant Irish then who are dissenters in Northern Ireland, Penn's notions and promotion of Pennsylvania as a place of religious toleration is very, very important. They start to come over, though, uh, in the early 18th century and mostly come over in several waves. One of them starts in the 17-teens and goes through the 1720s, so there's a big kind of uptick in migration during that time. It wanes for a time, then there's another big wave of migration in the 1760s that lasts up to the eve of the American Revolution. Then again, it it wanes for a time, and then again after the American Revolution in the 1780s, 1790s especially, and then on into the early 19th century, there is another very substantial wave of migrants. Um, and mostly, so there's a series of push-pull factors. Um, clearly Pennsylvania and Penn is working very hard to lure them over here to make this the place that they will come in the Americas. They do have choices, for instance, and they, you know, he wants to ensure that they come here. But then at the same time, in the early 18th century, they are starting to find that the political and economic climate in Ireland is shifting in ways that they are getting pushed out. Uh, The English are starting to um, stigmatize them as religious dissenters, so they are finding certain um, political avenues closed off to them. At the same time, there's a lot of economic turmoil in Ireland, particularly in Ulster in the 18th century. The linen industry is kind of going through boom and bust cycles, and so there are a lot of economic incentives driving them out of Northern Ireland in the 18th century.
1: Did people come in groups, or did whole villages move, or families, or was there a lot of individuals?
0: A little bit of all, although what makes the Scots-Irish interesting is that Although there are certainly individuals who come over, and many of them come over as servants, the predominant wave of migrants comes over in families. So, and and they don't necessarily always migrate as intact communities, but frequently they migrate as sort of serial migrants, where members of the community, or a community, or a church community, come over. You know, in on a staggered basis through a series of years or decades. So there are lots of links then in networks that connect them um, here and in Ireland.
1: So if you're among the early groups who migrate over here, you, you sell your farm and pull your money and get on the boat and come over and you land in Philadelphia, is that where mm-hmm. you, you or, New, or
0: Newcastle, Delaware. And, and
1: you get off the boat, what next?
0: Um, Usually, you engage in a series of kind of staggered migrations. So most people, once they get off the boat, probably most of them come over as free migrants, so they're not servants. So that means that they have some economic resources, enough economic resources to get them over here. Typically, they spend perhaps a year or more uh, in or near the ports where they landed or living in the hinterlands outside of Philadelphia or outside of Newcastle. Then at that point in time, most of them are making some calculated decisions about where they intend their lives to go. Are they going to be urban people? Like for instance, is their ambition to work as merchants, for instance, which is gonna keep them in Philadelphia or Newcastle or somewhere probably um, in the eastern reaches of the colony? Or is their real interest land? And for the majority of immigrants, their real interest was land. And so then they have to make some calculated choices about where can they afford land, where can they find land, how much land do they need to keep themselves going. And those choices put a lot of these migrants on the move again in a series of moves, sometimes across the state, sometimes... um, to the central portion of the state, and then down into the southern back countries, or after the revolution, out into the west, out into the Midwest. So essentially then, they start mostly in the coastal east, oftentimes in cities in or near Philadelphia, and then many of them move on from there to other places.
1: Who would they have gotten land from?
0: Um, Well, they can buy it from other colonists. Or many of them benefit from um, land deals that the colony is cutting with various Native American peoples uh, in the mid-18th century. So uh, they benefit, they're one of the migrant groups that benefits enormously from the land purchasing that William Penn's son, Thomas, is doing at mid-century as he is trying to make essentially, as he's trying to make money off of land sales in the interior at mid-century. Then there are also a fair number of squatters who purchase land informally, directly from uh, Indians. They go out to the frontier and they sort of settle themselves down and they negotiate directly and informally with local Indians who are willing to sell them land. So it happens in a variety of ways. Um, and depending on their income and their uh, economic resources, you know, if you are fairly well-to-do, you're more likely to find good land maybe in Chester County or Delaware, what's now Delaware County, closer to the city. If you're poor, you're probably going further west into the interior.
1: I want to read this one part from your book. You say, Thomas Penn was an anglican he had the goal of preventing his very valuable country from being cut to pieces by rabble and evicted squatters promoted land surveys and purchases and collected overdue rents so would he go in and swoop in on the scots irish who had bought their land from the indians and say no no
0: yeah well he didn't he didn't do it personally but he sent his people to do (laughs) it um and what's interesting about that is that at times he had actually other Scots-Irish working for him doing some of those effictions. So one of the really puzzling thing about this group of people is how divided they could be uh, amongst one another. Um, and uh, yeah, and this, yes, Thomas Penn was not at all adverse to making sure that land purchases happened in an orderly fashion. And if that meant evicting squatters and burning down their cabins to get them off land that had not been formally purchased, um, then that's what he did. And it's because, you know, like many people in the colonial period, he's juggling many interests, and some of them are his own, and his interests in making sure that his colony is um, profitable and orderly. Um, but he's also interested in maintaining peace with with Indians who were also at times upset at squatters invading lands that they think are theirs. So he's, like many people in the time, he's juggling many interests and at times is more than happy to, to evict people who are technically his colonists.
1: Well, then, how did the the Scots Irish settlers get along with the Native Americans? Um,
0: A mixed, there's a mixed relationship. Um, In many respects, we know, although it's hard to document in certain cases, that they got along fine on an individual level, on a local level. Um, Because certainly we know, and I've seen in some of my other work, There are plenty of Scots-Irish entrepreneurs who go out to trade with Native Americans. Um, Some of them would have intermarried at times with Native Americans. Um, uh, They purchase land from them. So on an informal, sometimes daily basis, those relationships can be quite positive. But then, um, as anybody who reads the book will find out, um, there's also a tremendous amount of tension because when we get to the 1750s and um, imperial concerns start a pattern of warfare that is especially um, violent on Pennsylvania's frontier Scots-Irish often find themselves pitted against Indians and so the relationship becomes increasingly hostile through time and and that hostile relationship is one of the things that really um, kind of uh, has helped to give the Scots-Irish this stereotyped reputation of being very violent and ultimately quite racist peoples.
1: Well, you also have a different stereotype of them. You say contemporary observers and later historians criticize them for being poor, lazy, and unproductive people who conf- compared unfavorably to other European ethnic groups of their time, particularly the Germans. So when they moved here, they would have found a lot of Germans. Oh, yes, they would
0: Yeah, because um, Germans are the other big migrant group who are coming at much the same time that they are. And Germans and Scots-Irish are um, really the two groups competing for land as land is opening up in Pennsylvania's west. Um, Many commentators of the time period compare them unfavorably to Germans. Um, People like Benjamin Rush is notorious for sort of touting Germans as the model migrants, immigrants of the 18th century, that they settle down, they build orderly farms, they build big barns, um, they till the fields, they're very frugal, they're kind of sober industrious people. And then the flip side of that is that the Scots-Irish are sort of everything that the Germans are not. They are restless. They move around. He talks about how they move around too much. They drink too much, of course. They're not very effective farmers. Um, They essentially, you know, in 18th century terms, they're a group that doesn't have its act together. And so, uh, again, they get this very unfavorable reputation, which evidence suggests is not at all um, well-earned. You know, there's lots of evidence to suggest that that's not so. They might have been maybe on the move a little bit more than German settlers at the time were, but they had perfectly productive farms. They were perfectly productive members of society, uh, and they were not all just a group of drunks, for instance. that There was a little bit more to them than that stereotype.
1: But they would have farms side by side with Germans? Oh, yeah,
0: frequently, yes.
1: So how did they maintain their identity as a... An ethnic group,
0: um, mostly through I would argue um, their church. That's one of the ways that really uh, the, the Presbyterian Church is the thing that I think continues to ground them as an ethnic group. Because certainly there's a lot of evidence that there's intermarriage between Scots Irish and German settlers, uh, for sure. So. In many respects, the ethnic lines start to blur, but religion is one of the things that really holds, um, holds their sense of identity as a people together. But I would add, too, that one of the things that makes them sort of slippery subjects is that they are a people who assimilates fairly quickly. And that assimilation takes place on a variety of levels. One of the ways that they assimilate is by intermarrying with other ethnic groups, with the English people who lived around them and with the Germans who lived around them. So one of the reasons why we don't, uh, well, the book, for instance, ends in the early 19th century is that they're much harder to find as we move forward in time. Um, They move on, They they do move west as we get into the 19th century and they do uh, lose some of their ethnic distinctiveness through time because of intermarriage with other groups. So I would say the church is one of the things. Presbyterianism is one of the key things that holds them together.
1: And they spoke English when they got here?
0: Uh, oh yes. Yeah, they did. Did yes, that give they
1: them did. an advantage over the Germans because oh, yes, the English would've. were Oh yeah,
0: for sure. Yes, it does. Gives them a huge advantage. So uh, the Germans may get a lot of plus points in a lot of um, colonial officials' minds for being so orderly and industrious, but what the Scots-Irish have going is that they speak English, and they would have been very, very familiar with English legal and political systems, having worked within them in uh, Ireland and in Scotland. So... That's – it's very, very important. You know, it's something that can't be overstated because whatever differences there were, they still spoke the language. And that makes a huge difference. When
1: did friction start with the Indians?
0: Friction mostly starts with the Indians in the 1750s. You can argue that there – and we can look, I'm sure, and find plenty of instances – where there was friction earlier, but the real friction starts with the beginning of the Seven Years' War or French and Indian War in the 1750s, um, at, which is influenced by English and French imperial rivalries, but on the ground here in Pennsylvania results in a whole series of Native American raids on frontier settlements. And for the Scots-Irish, uh, that they find themselves one of the groups that's kind of under siege on the frontier. And then they find themselves equally frustrated by uh, a colonial government that at that point is dominated by uh, Quaker colonists who are not so eager to commit to war because of their own religious beliefs and their adherence to pacifism. So that then... uh, Puts the Scots-Irish uh, kind of pushes the Scots-Irish into a corner, and um, and they start to take up defense on um, uh, you know uh, by their own means.
1: So they felt like, oh, we're on our own here.
0: Yeah, they really mm-hmm. did. And there are petitions uh, that certainly come into Philadelphia, and some of them are for sure a bit exaggerated, um, but. Uh, There's plenty of evidence to suggest that they absolutely feel like they have to take things into their own hands. And in fact, um, John Armstrong, who is um, a Scots-Irish immigrant, uh, came over from Northern Ireland, he lives in Carlisle. Uh, He and a group of men get kind of an informal permission to go out and wage their own attack on the Delaware Indian town of Catanning out in western Pennsylvania as a way to retaliate for the raids that had happened on their, um, on their communities and to hopefully recapture uh, some white captives that um, the Native Americans had taken to, and were supposedly holding in Catanning. And they staged a very brutal raid on Catanning, um, murdering, uh, whole, setting the town on fire, murdering Indian men, women, and children, and scalping quite a number of them. So um, they very much see themselves as, from their perspective, they're forced to take a a kind of offensive position as a form of defense. They
1: thought the Indians started it?
0: Oh yeah, they did. Uh, In retrospect, (laughs) we can be a little bit more judgmental about Mm -hmm. what they were doing and why they were doing it and the kinds of things that were motivating them. But for sure, uh, what I would say is that from their perspective, they were very much under attack and they struck back and they struck back quite, quite brutally.
1: Tell me about the Paxton boys.
0: Ah, the Paxton boys. So, um, the Paxton boys are prob- have probably single-handedly done more to shape the Scots Irish reputation as violent frontiersmen than anything else. So the Paxton boys, uh, for those who don't know, were a group of, um, Well, we don't know exactly who they were. They were anonymous. But a group of frontiersmen who, uh, at the end of the Seven Years' War, just as Pontiac's War is starting up, there's another Native American war that follows right at the end of the Seven Years' War.
1: And that was in Pennsylvania? This is
0: uh, primarily in Pennsylvania. It's Mm -hmm. not exclusively in Pennsylvania. A group of uh, frontiersmen frustrated that their settlements are being attacked yet again in the early 1760s, during this new Indian war, decide to take matters into their own hands. And they take vengeance on a group of Christianized Indians, the Conestogas, who live just outside the town of Lancaster. And in December of 1763, they first attack the Conestoga village, which is not very far outside of Lancaster, killing quite a number of people. And then uh, local authorities bring the remaining Conestogas into the city of Lancaster, house them in the city's workhouse. And shortly thereafter, a group of um, frontiersmen who call themselves, I should say, uh, the Paxton, well, they call themselves the Paxton men because they are supposedly from Paxton Township, uh, Lancaster County, which is a predominantly Scots-Irish township at this time, ride into town, break down the doors of the workhouse, and brutally murder the Native peoples, uh, including um, women and children that had been housed in the workhouse. They then threaten to march on Philadelphia, and Philadelphia goes into a panic. And so it results, the upshot of all this is that we see the brutal murder of these Christianized Conestoga Indians who had signed treaties of friendship with Pennsylvania and were uh, allied with Pennsylvania. So they were certainly not the Indians who were the real enemies of the frontier by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, And uh, we also see as an upshot of this a huge uh, pamphlet war controversy going on in a, a, a kind of print, a war of words in print taking place in 1764. As various people, including most notably Benjamin Franklin, chime in to debate the these heinous actions and what they mean for the colony. And Franklin is, of course, incredibly condemning of the men he calls the Paxton Boys, um, condemning these predominantly Scots-Irish frontiersmen as a bunch of ruffians, as um, as people who were uh, whose who were acting uh, antithetical to the interests of the colony, who were acting against the colony's best interests, and who were basically just savages themselves. I mean, he really talks about them as Christian white savages. And so he kind of turns the table on stereotypes we usually think about being associated with Indians, and he says that, no, 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 these Europeans. And he presumed that they were all Scots-Irish, Uh, are really, they're the real savages, and the Indians, these innocent Indians, are just that. They're the innocent victims of these brutal savages. And then there are other people who come into this pamphlet war and essentially try to not entirely defend the Scots-Irish, because I think most of them would admit these are heinous (laughs) actions by anyone's reckoning, but they do try to explain why this had happened and why this group of men had been pushed to do this. And so it results in a kind of um, fairly sizable debate that spills over into politics about about the role of the Scots-Irish in the colony. Um, And it has lots of ramifications because uh, because the Scots-Irish were becoming such a large group in the colony at the time, they had come indeed to have a political presence in the colony. And so in many respects, their critics, like Franklin, use the Paxton Boys episode as a way to critique their political rise and to argue that it needs to be stopped. So it's an incident that functions on a whole lot of levels. I mean, there's the intercultural kind of aspect of this brutal attack on these Native American people, which is really heinous. But then there's this whole other level at which this is just part, is used, that heinous act is used as a way to debate much bigger issues in the colony about who's in control, who should be in control, um, and, and the role of migrants generally within the colony.
1: Was anyone ever punished for the Paxton Boys no, raid? That's
0: what's so interesting is that no one was ever, um, no one was ever punished for those heinous actions. And in fact, there's some later 19th century historians who claim that they can identify some of the Paxton men, but really they remain anonymous. So while we reports suggest that they were mostly Scots Irish, we don't really know for sure who they were. Who were the black boys? Who are the black boys? The black boys are a group of frontiersmen, predominantly Scots-Irish, who rise up not long after the Paxton boys. This would be 1765. And attack a wagon train of goods headed west to Fort Pitt and ultimately for trade with the Indians. And they have come to believe that this wagon train is carrying various forms of ammunition that are going to be traded to Indians and that will then be used to attack their settlements. And what's interesting about it is that they get the name Black Boys because they blacken their faces, so they sort of, following... um, common practice in the colonial revolutionary period. It's going to be what uh, the colonists in Boston do during the Tea Party where they blacken their faces and sort of dress up kind of as Native Americans. The black boys go out and sort of stop and halt this wagon train arguing that they are protecting their federal, fellow settlers from this you know, ammunition, gunpowder that's guns, weapons that are going west.
1: So that was an English government wagon train? I mean, they they were attacking the English... Well, it's
0: it's a wagon train that has some sanction from the colonial government. The irony, though, is that the leader of it is a guy named Robert Callender, who is actually a Scots-Irishman. So what makes it quite fascinating is, is, although it's predominantly Scots-Irishmen who see themselves as protecting the frontier and their fellow colonists by... Making sure that this shipment doesn't go west, the person leading the train is technically one of them.
1: Was there a rift then between the Scots Irish who stayed in Philadelphia and the ones who moved to the frontier?
0: Um, Yes and no. There, there are some of those rifts are based in geography, and for sure, those who stay in Philadelphia have very different interests. Oftentimes, more imperial centered. Or colonial colony wide centered interests, than their counterparts out on the frontier, but calendars actually from Carlisle, and so what's interesting is that it also shows that there are some divides, uh, kind of rural urban divides, out you know in the interior as well, because um, there's a real divide between many of the town dwelling. Scots-Irish folks who live in Carlisle, who live in Reading, who live in uh, later Bedford and other towns in the West, and those who are rural people, who are out there on their small farms trying to make their way. And so, again, it's quite interesting to see the way, uh, in many cases, it's urban economic networks cut from, obviously, across the water in Europe over to Philadelphia, to places like Carlisle or Lancaster and link people together. And then some of the rural people are not always quite as enmeshed in those links. And so they have very different interests.
1: So when, when incidents started that led up to the American Revolution, what side did the Scots-Irish come down on?
0: Oh, overwhelmingly on the side of the revolution. And that is really uh, one of the key stories of their participation and their experience in Pennsylvania. Um, and it's interesting, too, because it's not true of their experience everywhere in America. Like in the southern backcountry, many Scots-Irishmen are not actually pro-revolution. But in Pennsylvania, they really lead. They are the revolutionary vanguard. And it has to do with a whole variety of things. Um, certainly, in, one, in, certain case, in certain respects, um, their experience in Ireland with the English helps to shape a kind of anti-British attitude. But then um, the internal dynamics of Pennsylvania politics also means that as the revolution approaches and as the Quakers, for instance, uh, clearly state that their their pacifism is going to prevent them from joining the fighting side of this revolution, we also see a kind of vacuum happening at both the political and military levels that the Scots Irish can sort of step into, Quaker leadership, and in many respects the English Anglican leadership of the colony is moving out as the revolution approaches, and so Scots Irish uh, in Philadelphia and out in the countryside very much step up to lead the the well the colony and then the states political revolution. And to lead, really, uh, much of its military effort, much of the fighting war.
1: Well, There's Scots in the Continental Congress and the, in the Colonial Assembly?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh so they absolutely. got into elected office. Oh, absolutely. Office. So they get Politics. into elected office. I mean, I, co- I concentrated mostly on the state history. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, they become, they very much are the revolutionary vanguard in the state.
1: And when independence was won, where did they come down on uh, the issue of the Constitution?
0: Uh, That's where they start to divide again. (laughs) Yeah, so they are a group that can be unified frequently when there is an enemy to oppose. On the Constitution, they divide quite bitterly. Um, Many, though not all, some, and this does not necessarily... Uh, play out strictly by geography or urban-rural dynamics. Um, Many of the Scots-Irish that had been a little bit unhappy with the revolutionary and quite radical Scots-Irish leadership during the Revolution uh, very much kind of come out for the U.S. Constitution. They want that order. They want moderation. They want... um, they want to ensure an American future as, um, as a nation. Whereas many of the key Scots-Irishmen who had been extremely committed to kind of a more radical Republican revolution during the 1770s and 1780s come out as opposed to the Constitution by the late 1780s because they see it, in certain respects, as a conspiracy against their radicalism, as a conspiracy uh, as a conspiracy of elitists, as, as a conspiracy against some of the more democratic impulses that they wanted to bring forward in the state and nation. But
1: by now, Scott, a lot of Scots-Irish were the elitists.
0: Yes, they are. Right. And so that's, of course, the complete <laughs> irony. So what you see is essentially elite political leaders dividing amongst themselves. Were the Scots-Irish behind the Whiskey Rebellion? Uh, In part they are, but that too is a place where they divide. If we go out to western Pennsylvania you would find lots and lots of Scots-Irish frontier farmers and distillers, absolutely participants and leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion. At the same time, there are many Scots-Irishmen, especially in central and eastern Pennsylvania, who are the people who are fighting against them. And again, it's differing sort of, in the post-revolutionary period, it's that these groups of Scots-Irishmen define, uh, they define the future in different ways. Both groups are absolutely committed to the American republic. Uh, Many of them have very much Democratic-leaning tendencies, but they completely and totally disagree about how to achieve those ends.
1: When the parties started to form and you had the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans, where did the Scots-Irish drift?
0: Um, Well, they, they start in both parties, so there are certainly a contingent of them who align themselves with the Federalists, and this is mostly coming out of the constitutional era. But very quickly, one of the things that unifies them is that uh, certainly by the time of Jefferson's election in 1800, they are overwhelmingly unified behind Jeffersonian uh, democratic republicanism.
1: Was there an issue that brought them, the Scots Irish, together with Jefferson?
0: Well, they support much of his vision, and they also. This is also at a time when um, the Federalist Party is is in in certain respects starting to wane. So they are they are a group that just signs on to Jeffersonian Democratic Republicanism in large part because. It picks up on a lot of the key values that they held dear, particularly republicanism uh, and their commitment to a form of democratic republicanism in the post-revolutionary period. Again, they may not have always agreed on the means to achieve it, but they agreed on those ends. Um, But as historians would tell you, they also then, even though they unify around Jefferson, Pennsylvania's Democratic Republican Party also then very quickly divides into two rival factions in the first decade of the 19th century. So again, they agree, but they often disagree on some of the fine details.
1: You have in the uh, tail end of your book a map showing Pennsylvania, showing all the towns in Pennsylvania that got their names from the Scots-Irish. Any other legacy they left here?
0: Quite a number of things, Um, although sometimes we forget about these legacies. One of the big ones has to be the number of colleges that they founded. Uh, I'm a Dickinson College alum. It's very much a college that was founded by Scots-Irish folks. Um, So that's one of the big things. Um, Many of the diamond town squares in western Pennsylvania, uh, diamonds uh, that the use of the term diamond to describe a central square is a northern Irish thing so there are these um, legacy then of education a legacy on the landscape of, of town planning that, that we still see today we might forget all those town names we had a lot of fun putting that map together kind of figuring out how many there actually were so there's a kind of Not always, we don't always notice these legacies, and in part I think it's because they were so effective at assimilating that some of the things that they did that are so important have just become part of the mainstream history of the state. So we no longer think of things like Dickinson College as being you know, a a Presbyterian institution. We don't think of it that way. It's just another one of our liberal arts colleges in the state.
1: Now, you've been on this program before for your book, A Town in Between, about Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Are you working on another book?
0: Um, Yes, I am. I'm working on a book that's about um, what I'm calling, well, I don't have a good title for it right now, uh, but it's about um, the material culture of ethnic identity in early America. So actually working on this book got me thinking a lot about how people recognized uh, and stereotyped various ethnic groups in the 18th century. And so I'm working on a project that's kind of looking about how people looked in the 18th century.
1: We are out of time. We've been speaking with Judith Ridner. She is the author of this book, The Scots-Irish of Early Pennsylvania. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN. The Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.